You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. To shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh! A spectacular by Michael Jordan! And now, your host. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey listeners, it's On the NBA Beat. I'm Lauren Lee Chen here with Aaron Fishman, and we're going to be talking Raptors today. The Raptors got off to a strong start this season looking to build off their Eastern Conference Finals run, but after dealing with injuries and other issues, have slipped in the standings as of late. Blake Murphy, managing editor of Raptors Republic, joins us on this episode to dissect the Raptors season and how he sees them faring in the postseason. We've had guests with food quirks on before. Blake's is that he has never liked potatoes in any form, even in Canada's most famous culinary invention, poutine. Maybe we shouldn't have scheduled this for a St. Patrick's Day release. Hey Blake, thanks for joining us tonight. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's been a really interesting year for the Raptors this season. Until about mid-January, they were one of the most efficient offenses in the league. They were going back and forth with the Warriors for the best offensive rating in the league through 41 games. Theirs was at 113.8, which was number one, I think number one in history, actually, if they had held up that for the entire season. Since then, they've been approximately a bottom 10 team in the league in terms of offensive rating. We'll get to the effect of Kyle Lowry's injury later in the talk, but other than that, what do you think changed for the Raptors' offense around that point? Part of it was just regression. Like, they were going to come down from this historic offense. Um, You know, the way regression works, you're not owed a stretch of particularly poor offensive play uh, to make up for, you know, overperforming for a bit. But you saw a little bit how tenuous their success was uh, when they hit cold three-point shooting spells. They're not a super high-volume three-point shooting team, but they, uh, you know, they were top five in the NBA in three-point percentage last year, and for a little while this year, they were top five as well. Um, DeMar DeRozan missed a few games. Patrick Patterson, who was a huge glue guy for them, and whose impact was felt more at the defensive end, but who was still a, a floor spacer in their primary closing units, the loss of him for 17 games derailed things a little bit. And all of these little kind of things, the rotating cast of starting power forwards, playing two bigs together or committing to playing small all the time. It was just a lot of change for a team that's basically been the same for three or four years now. Um, and it wasn't something they've had to go through very much recently. So, you know, a little bit regression, a little bit cold three-point shooting for a while, uh, a few minor injuries, and then just some adversity that they hadn't really faced in a while. I don't think it was anything, you know, with the system necessarily that, you know, Lowry and DeRozan-led offense can't be a good offense because it has been for multiple years now. It was more just they ran into a lot of roadblocks uh, at once, and they were playing really poorly. Like, Lowry and DeRozan were still playing to their own levels, but pretty much everyone else, um, you know, Jonas Valanciunas wasn't being uh, as dominant as he usually is. Damari Carroll and Patrick Patterson were in shooting slumps or in the latter's case, missing time. Corey Joseph was having a pretty rough year. Norman Powell was a little inconsistent off the bench. So kind of just all these little things that this awesome offense was teetering on kind of went the other way for a little while. And they got Serge Ibaka via trade to sort of try to assuage some of those problems. He's done fairly well since joining the Raptors, especially from 
the three-point line, save for a scoreless performance on Monday night. How would you assess how he's fitting with the team so far and the impact that he's going to have in the postseason? I think Monday is such a great example because he was held scoreless and he was still a team high plus 18. And we know with single game plus minus, you can kind of throw that out the window, but he's had a nice positive impact. You mentioned the three point shooting. Uh, he's knocking down 40% of his looks on four and a half attempts a game. And the best thing for the Raptors offense is that most of those have been above the break. Normally the Raptors get a lot of corner shooting, especially from their power forward position. But as Abaka's played some center, he's giving them a nice pop threat, which is a different wrinkle for guys like DeRozan and when he's back Lowry to use Uh, so that's been nice defensively the Raptors defense has been much much better since the trade deadline I think they're seventh in the NBA in defensive rating over the last 10 games that's not all owing to Ibaka but he's been a nice rim protecting presence that before his acquisition you know Lucas Nogueira who's now out of the rotation was really their only rim protector Uh, Ibaka's seeing a lot of time at center in close games they've been closing with Ibaka at center he'll then Trapper hedge in the pick and roll and they'll kind of switch everything else on the floor. So it's, he's a nice different look on the defensive end. Offensively, you know, once Lowry's back, Abaka's usage is probably going to be closer to what it, what it was in OKC with Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant there. But, you know, defensively, he's something this team didn't really have. And he opens up a lot of flexibility and a lot of options for Dwayne Casey. So I know you guys want to talk about Lowry later. Working Lowry back in with a piece like Abaka should be no problem at all. Yeah, and as you said, he's taking some minutes at center, which has resulted in JV, Jonas Valanciunas' minutes going down, but Valanciunas is also still contributing, rebounding efficiently. He's still starting alongside Abaka. With Abaka being a free agent unrestricted this season, how much of a priority will retaining him be for the Raptors, and what does that mean for the future of Valanciunas with Toronto? Yeah, it's an interesting question that's come up a lot since they got Ibaka. And you look at their cap sheet, and they're going to be up against it. Even before the Ibaka acquisition, uh, they were going to be up against it because Kyle Lowry is a free agent. Jonas Valanciunas and, at the time, Terrence Ross are, are into their extensions. DeMar DeRozan got 90% of the max last year. And Patrick Patterson's a free agent. So you add Ibaka into the mix and P.J. Tucker, and it's tough to even keep, you know, if you're playing around with potential roster iterations, it's tough to keep the Raptors even out of the luxury so um, you look at how well they've played with Ibaka at center. You look at the fact that Jakob Pertl has given them some nice minutes in a backup center role. That Lucas Noguera is still, you know, second on the team in net rating for the season, even with his flaws. And that's over, you know, over a thousand minutes at this point. Um, there's definitely a case to be made that if they're going to keep guys and they don't want to pay a Cleveland Cavaliers level luxury tax. Jonas Valanciunas is a piece that makes sense to send out. He's going to be 25 this offseason. His contract is, you know, not the best in the world, but it's, it's market value and it's reasonable enough that a team might take it on. They might see some upside still in a, in a young big who hasn't reached uh, at least his offensive ceiling yet. So yeah, it, Valanciunas is in a weird place where, you know, the better he helps this team do, the more likely it may be that he's outgoing. And his name was rumored at the trade deadline uh, alongside DeMarcus Cousins and alongside Andre Drummond. And Masai Ujiri, there's a, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Open Gym series that the Raptors put out. There's a funny clip in the most recent one where Jonas Valanciunas asks Masai Ujiri about the Andre Drummond trade rumor. And Ujiri tells him, no, you're way better than Drummond, uh, which was interesting. But I, I think, I think if you're looking ahead to the summer and things go well, they make the second or third round this year. Valanciunas is a piece that maybe doesn't fit if you're trying to keep a Baca and pay everyone. 
You expressed earlier that when Kyle Lowry comes back, there should be no problem integrating him back into the lineup with Serge Ibaka. He was having a career year, Kyle Lowry, from seemingly everywhere on the court, especially three-point line, but overall efficiency. He was an all-star, of course, just in his prime of his career. In which tangible ways do you see his absence felt right now with this team, even though they are 6-4 and without him? Yeah, his impact is huge. Um, you know, before the injury, I think he was top five in ESPN's real plus minus. If you're a fan of the stat, basketball reference, uh, Vorp, he's still like worth 3.2 more wins than anyone else on the Raptors on the season. Uh, and we've kind of seen for years with the on off court numbers that this team with Lowry is every bit as good as they've shown and the record has suggested. And when Lowry's hit the bench, whether it be in the regular season or uh, most notably in the postseason last year, the Raptors kind of, you know, they fall off pretty significantly. Now, they're 6-4 and four without him during this stretch and 7-4 and four without him on the season. So they're hanging in there and they're, you know, they're defending a lot better in part because of the new additions. The offense hasn't fallen as far as maybe we expected. But Lowry, Lowry is kind of the engine with this team. And Dwayne Casey referred to him as the team's queen bee, which I thought was a, a funny way to put it, but also uh, pretty apt. So you look at the things they do offensively, and even though his usage is 10 percentage points lower than DeRozan, Kyle Lowry's their best three-point shooter. So when DeRozan is operating, Lowry's the best floor spacer they have to help DeRozan's game. Uh, you look at their three-point shooting since he's gone out, it's almost all catch and shoot. They don't have any pull-up three-point threats, uh, and Lowry is one of the best alongside, you know, your Steph Curry, Damian Lillard, Kyrie Irvings at pulling up even from 30 feet. And that's an element, especially in the transition game, that opponents have to pay attention to. He's a decent rebounder. You know, the, the Raptors struggle on the defensive glass, and, and he hasn't been at his best there this year. But generally, he cracks back well to help in that regard. Uh, the Raptors are obviously notorious for not moving the ball particularly well, while Lowry's their best playmaker. So it's all these kind of little things on each side of the floor. And then defensively, I don't think he's been at his best this season. There have been long stretches where, you know, he's been guilty of the blow-bys that that have kind of hurt the Raptors and, and Corey Joseph in particular for long parts of the season. But Lowry, when he's locked in, and we've seen this in the playoffs, um, at least two of the last three years, he was a shell of himself again in the Washington year. Uh, but he can be a very game defender, and he's physical, Casey likes to throw the bulldog term around. It's fairly appropriate. So it's all these kind of little areas. And he's an interesting case where um, the numbers don't pop. And then you look at some of the advanced numbers or you watch the Raptors play and see how they struggle when he sits. You really have to kind of watch and dig in to get the appreciation for everything Lowry brings to the table. And it's funny. You look and DeMar DeRozan's an all-star too. And he's he started the season so hot and he's playing so well with Lowry on the shelf and he averages five more points a game. And it's still hard to shake the feeling that, you know, Lowry's not more important to this team. Yeah, a lot of people were saying that Lowry was getting so much love around the league. We have to go a little bit negative because a lot of people are wondering. Lowry has been lauded for being a team player, being really smart on and off the court. But there are some question marks about why he competed in the All-Star game and the three-point contest. I know he said that he woke up the morning after their last pre-All-Star game with pain in his wrist. He thought he slept on it wrong or something and didn't end up telling anyone except his wife, no team personnel. Then he left for New Orleans and competed, as I said. The optics of that just look horrible. Can you give us a little bit more perspective into that situation and maybe defend him to a certain extent? 
Yeah, you're you're right that the optics don't look great. And I thought if Lowry thought that the wrist injury was minor and he went about his business, um, I think that's, you know, kind of justifiable to a degree. If he woke up with wrist soreness during the All-Star break, even if he had said something to the team, the team likely would have said, well, just rest, ice it, and we'll check it out when you're back. This doesn't sound like something that he could have made worse by playing. It certainly wouldn't have got better while he was playing, and the toll of shooting 25 threes in short order in the three-point contest probably doesn't help. Um, but this is an, something, you know, loose bodies in your wrist. That doesn't happen because you played through soreness. So I get it in that sense. And the way the way it got um, compared around the team was, you know, if you wake up with a cough, you don't go to the doctor right away. What I will say, though, is that optically, Kyle Lowry, you know, he's a guy who chooses his words pretty deliberately. You guys surely remember a couple weeks prior to this when the Raptors were at their very lowest, and he made some comments that were very clearly about, you know, the team's ability to make adjustments on the fly uh, against opponents, and everyone read that as a criticism of Dwayne Casey. Lowry chooses his words deliberately, and for him to dig in and say things like, no, I wouldn't change anything about my weekend, I had a fun weekend, why would I change anything? Um, even if he feels that way, and, and even if there's nothing he could have done differently, just maybe don't say that stuff. Just like, yeah. like maybe show some... Some, I don't know the word for it, but like show some disappointment in the situation. You know, don't admit you did anything wrong if you don't feel you did anything wrong, but you don't need to be like, nah, I had fun. I had the best weekend. I wouldn't take that round of golf back. Like there's a middle ground you could take there where you don't admit fault. You say the situation is what it is and you don't kind of puff yeah. your chest out about having done it. I agree. I think we all really appreciate Kyle Lowry's honesty in general, but he definitely could have been more diplomatic about that, given how important he is to the team and just how the situation looks, even if he firmly believes he didn't do anything wrong. Personally, I think that he should have let team personnel know, but it's so much easier for me in this situation, detached, not being a player, because players have so many nagging things throughout the season. And you never know if something is just going to be better the next day. So I'm definitely not in a position to tell him what he should or shouldn't be doing. And from what I understand, the Saturday at All-Star Weekend, he wasn't hiding that he was, like, icing his wrist. And during the game on Sunday, you guys will remember, everyone freaked out because he was wearing that, like, giant contraption on his hand. So he didn't really hide it. So the team personnel that were around, and there were some, probably knew about it. I just don't think it was a thing where, you know, it's a sore wrist, I guess. Maybe it just happens enough that no one thinks too much of it. I don't really know. Um, it's It's a tough spot where... Yeah, you'd think with how much is on the line, especially with him ahead of free agency, that you would take every possible precaution. But, like, the outcome here, if he had been shown all the caution in the world, is that maybe he gets this surgery, like, a couple days earlier. Like, it doesn't sound like he made it worse. Uh, mm -hmm. He maybe could have got surgery late in the All-Star break. So it's maybe, it's probably been made a bigger deal just because the optics of it are so poor when really the actual impact of him having played through it might not be that significant. Yeah. With that injury and also the trading away of Terrence Ross, there's been a lot more opportunities for Norman Powell and Corey Joseph. Norman Powell has looked good lately and he's only in his second season. Corey Joseph seems like he's playing pretty well too. What steps is Toronto taking to ensure those two guys continued development and what have you seen from them so far? Um, with Corey Joseph, you know, it, it's interesting. He was playing 
very poorly before the All-Star break. And his offensive numbers were about the same as they, they were last year. But defensively, and this was, you know, eye test and the, the advanced metrics backing this up, uh, he wasn't the same guy. He was getting blown by a lot more. He was growing frustrated himself with his inability on the defensive end. And it was kind of strange for a guy who earned his paycheck kind of on the defensive end last year. Whether it was the All-Star break, whether it's been getting more regular run, he seems to have shaken that off. The defense has been a little better since the break. Offensively, he's not, you know, he's not doing anything dramatically different. Uh, his numbers on a per minute basis are, are more or less in line. Uh, one thing the Raptors are doing because, you know, Joseph isn't as gifted a pick and roll, uh, maestro as Lowry is, they've been setting up a lot more side pick and rolls really low on the floor so that teams can't go under screens because even though Joseph's improved as a shooter, you know, his ability to pull up is still kind of a weakness. So the Raptors have tried to paper over that a little bit. With Powell, Powell stepped up pretty big while DeMar DeRozan was out. He had a nice little uh, eight-game stretch in late January, early February, where he averaged almost 15 points a game and shot almost 50% from the floor. But then the nature of this team, when DeRozan and Carroll are healthy, he was drawing uh, DMP CDs after that. So um, since the break, he's been pretty good, especially in the last seven games or so. Out of the All-Star break, he, he's averaging... Um, Something like 12 points a game. I don't have the number right in front of me. Uh, he had a couple shaky games right out of the break, and it looked, you know, worrisome that, you know, maybe he wasn't going to step up into this Terrence Ross role, as some had hoped. And he doesn't bring the shooting that Ross brings. Uh, he shot the ball well the last week or two. But in general, you know, they don't run as many plays to get him threes, and teams don't respect him as much. Uh, what he does do, though, is give them another attacker. And, and that's something that Ross struggled with, was attacking the rim and breaking a defense down that way. And Powell's averaging about four free throw attempts a game since the All-Star break, which is a nice little wrinkle. He almost he almost plays the DeRozan role when DeRozan hits the bench, and it's been useful. Uh, and especially the last two games with Damari Carroll out, Powell's drawn the start, and uh, he, he's played he's played pretty well. He's given them that secondary offensive punch. Defense still a little inconsistent. He, he's a good defender, but not always the most attentive defender. He's he's a little up and down. He's a second year player, and it's. As far as expectations for a second-year player, even a guy who had four years of college experience, uh, you expect some up and down still. Just a quick thing I was wondering, also now because of the Lowry injury, DeLon Wright is finally getting some serious playing time. I saw him in Summer League a couple of years ago. He looked good, even though it's hard to get a good indication of a player's ability there because of the level of competition. What is he showing? He's, I, I've been a big DeLon Wright fan, uh, since they drafted him. I think he's crafty enough on the offensive end of the floor that even though he's not a great shooter yet and, you know, he's spending most of his time with bench guys, I think there's uh, enough there on offense to like that, to think he could be a backup for a team right now. And he's showing right now that that team can be the Raptors with Lowry out. The numbers don't pop, you know, one and a half assists per game over his 12 appearances. Uh, teammates are shooting a pretty low percentage on threes that he sets up. So that explains some of that there. Uh, defensively, he uses his length really well. He's averaging over half a block a game for a point guard. And, and yeah, he's 6'5 and has spent some time off ball uh, and one four block game kind of props that number up. But he's been pretty good on the defensive end. He's very active getting into passing lanes and tipping a lot of balls. Um, and then in transition, you know, when he can force those turnovers that help force them, uh, he's a tough check in transition. He kind of, he has this amoebic way of dribbling where you don't really know, like basically all of his dribbles look like they're the first part of a Euro step. He's always kind of moving in different directions. He changes his tempo really well. There's a lot he needs to work on still. His shooting needs to come along better. Sometimes he's 
guilty of making plays more difficult than they need to be. And it sometimes catches uh, his teammates, you know, unaware that a pass is coming, especially dumping off to a big man in the pick and roll. But, you know, as far as, again, we're talking about a second year player, even as a senior at a college, Bright barely played last year and he's been hurt most of this year. So the Raptors have to be encouraged. It's nice that he's been able to hold them steady for the most part in that backup role. Uh, Fred Van Vliet pushed him for those minutes a little bit. Yeah, but he, he's been solid. I'm encouraged about Wright. I've always been a fan of, uh, of his game. In addition to Serge Ibaka, who we talked about earlier, Masai Ujiri also brought in PJ Tucker at the trade deadline. I think literally a deadline deal, 3 p.m. He was brought in mainly as a defensive stopper, I think, particularly as a defensive stopper of LeBron James. Do you think he could be a critical X-factor in a hypothetical series in the playoffs against a guy like that, a dominant scorer? Yeah, I think so. Uh, the interesting thing that I found about Tucker so far, and it's only been 10 games, um, obviously he, he comes as a really well-regarded defender. Um, you know, DeMar DeRozan spoke the world of his defense, said he was one of the toughest three guys in the league to score on. No one is a LeBron stopper, but having an extra body to throw at him, especially with Damari Carroll looking like, you know, he's never going to get back to LeBron slower status that, that he was two years ago with the Hawks. It's nice to have that option. And Dwayne Casey's been aggressive, downsizing lineups and using PJ Tucker in these really switchy lineups that they've closed games with. The interesting thing to me about Tucker so far is that in the games the Raptors have played that weren't particularly close, either they won big or they lost big, Tucker doesn't have a lot of value, which it almost makes me think he was even more underrated in Phoenix because the things that he did, even though he was playing a bigger role there, they don't really matter to, you know, a 25-30 win team. To a 50-win team that's going to be in a playoff series and, and uh, theoretically in these close games, Tucker's... Almost everything Tucker does moves a team at the margins and it can make a good team, help make a good team great rather than make a bad team good. Uh, so I'm excited about the impact that's going to have, you know, in a tight series or in tight games later in the year. You look at the numbers, they're not much. They're going to ask him to knock down a corner three once in a while. Uh, he's taking four and a half shots a game right now. That'll probably trim even further as the rotation tightens, but he's basically being asked, Crash the offensive glass a little bit, defend like hell. And then if you get a shot in the corner, take it. And, and in that role, I mean, at the age that he's at, at 31, 32, um, where he is in his career, that's probably the best role for him and the best spot for him. Uh, and I think he's going to be a nice fit, especially as the rotation tightens. And, you know, Dwayne K, we talked about Ibaka earlier in the options he provides defensively. Uh, I think the biggest thing Ibaka and Tucker gives Dwayne Casey, other than plus defensive players, is a lot of lineup flexibility and matchup flexibility. You look at a, a team like Cleveland, and the Raptors are much better able to downsize right now in the event Cleveland's using that Fry Love front court or a, or a LeBron Love front court. The Raptors can play a lot more different ways right now, even if their talent level still isn't you know all that close to Cleveland overall. And you referenced Damari Carroll, the guy they brought in two off-seasons ago, as sort of that LeBron slower and now he's dealt with injuries seemingly his entire tenure with the Raptors that have limited his effectiveness. He's day-to-day now again. When he's healthy, can he still bring that sort of X-factor impact to a team like the Raptors? I don't think he can bring that like X-factor impact. I don't think he's going to be the guy he was a couple years ago. And most concerning right now is that he's, you know, after a couple years of really good three-point shooting, he's only shooting 33.8% this year. So that's the biggest thing the Raptors need from him on offense because he's not going to be cutting a lot like he was before. 
They're not going to feed him a lot. They need him to be knocking down threes, and that's not happening right now. Defensively, he's a high-effort guy. He still tries really hard. It's not as if the injuries have sapped uh, his energy level or anything like that. He just doesn't have a lot of lift. The The style of guy he can defend has changed a little bit, and it's not... You know, it's not LeBron James and it's not the lightning quick guy. So I still think he's a useful piece and you'd rather him healthy. And and he's probably going to start for the spacing impact that he has. But, you know, he's not what they signed up for when they got him. And that's okay. It's a sunk cost at this point. Um, But he's more, you know, useful rotation piece than potential third swing piece, as some people were maybe initially hoping. And now as we enter the home stretch of the regular season, it looks like the Raptors are going to stay either in the four or five spot. How would you measure the importance of obtaining home court advantage in the first round? Probably Atlanta would be their matchup in that spot. And what do you think their likelihood of staying in home court? I think it's important to them. You see the last, you know, what happened last year with the the two series going down to seven games. And, you know, you can't really assume that Lowry is going to be 100%. So this series, especially if it's against Atlanta, has the makings of kind of a grinded out series that might go to seven games. So getting that extra home court game, as much as the Raptors are terrible in game ones at home, having dropped like every single one over the last couple of years, you'd still rather have that extra game, especially a game seven on your own court. The Atlanta matchup, it looks most likely right now. The East is so fluid, though. Like, I know um, there are games that are going to take place uh, Thursday night, maybe before this comes out. Toronto, Atlanta, and Cleveland are all in action. But you see, you know, two, two and a half games between each of these spots in the standings where Indiana could still conceivably catch Atlanta, or Atlanta could catch Toronto, or Toronto could catch Washington. Washington, uh, you know, Washington's played better than maybe any team in the East lately, but they have that crazy five-game road trip at the end of the month. Uh, that season play four out West. That's going to be really tough for them. And Boston is going to be without Isaiah Thomas for a pair of games this weekend. Not a big deal since it's Philly and Brooklyn. But if that injury, that bone bruise for Thomas lingers, then, uh, you know, maybe they're weak as the two seed as well. So it's still going to be pretty fluid. I think if it were Toronto, Atlanta, which looks like the most likely case, I like Toronto's chances of holding on to home court, even without Lowry for a little while longer. Atlanta's not playing like world beaters right now. They're still getting outscored on the season. And, and I think the two-game cushion, even with Atlanta having the tiebreaker, uh, Toronto's probably in okay shape to keep it. They've got a pretty friendly schedule down the stretch in terms of opponent quality, even though a lot of their opponents are fighting for their playoff lives. It'll be interesting. I, I think Toronto could talk themselves into winning a road series in Atlanta as long as Lowry's back to something like himself. Uh, but they'd certainly rather have home court, and they'd certainly rather catch Washington for the three seed. With so much in flux, we don't know if Toronto will play Cleveland and if they do, when they would match up in the playoffs. Of course, the Cavaliers beat the Raptors 4-2 in last year's Eastern Conference Finals. Since each team has made some personnel moves, Toronto more notably, but they both have a key player, at least one, that's going to be returning from injury. Help us assess how they match up. Of course, the Cavaliers do have a little bit more talent. I think that would be true in comparing the Cavaliers team to any other team pretty much in the NBA at this point, aside from maybe the Warriors. But how do those two teams match up? Yeah, it's tough. What we saw last year was that when Toronto was at their best, they can hang with Cleveland. The two games that that the Raptors won in that series and the two they won in the regular season, uh, they played a, a good game. They kind of grinded things down a little bit. They made the game physical and they matched up with Cleveland well that way. But what we saw also at the same time was in the four games that Cleveland won, they 
ran Toronto off the floor. And in the, the regular season meetings this year, uh, Cleveland didn't have a ton of trouble with them. So like you said, that talent gap is obvious there. Uh, the fact that Cleveland can spread the floor across all five positions and, you know, the way they've kind of killed the Raptors this year is post LeBron up, force the Raptors to send help and, and kind of zone up behind LeBron. And then LeBron just pings passes the shooters all over the floor. Uh, you add Kyle Corver to that mix who wasn't there when, when the Raptors last played them. Uh, and that's pretty deadly. And they've added uh, Darren Williams for just, just because. And Larry Sanders, who knows what's going to come of that. But, you know, they've got all this depth throughout the roster and all this talent. The one thing the Raptors are better able to do now, though, and I mentioned it a little earlier, is they're a little more flexible lineup-wise. So, you know, they can start like they start and have Jonas Valanciunas battle on the boards with Tristan Thompson. But when the Cavs downsize with Love or Fry or e- even... Even with Thompson, if Thompson's out playing Valanciunas, the Raptors have that option now in Serge Ibaka, where last year they tried Bismack Biombo in that spot, and that was great. That helped defensively, um, but offensively, it, it kind of helped Cleveland load up on Toronto's ball handlers. And then defensively, too, um, the, the Cavs were just kind of avoiding Biombo to the point that the Raptors had to put Biombo on LeBron James because there was no sense keeping him around the rim. So it'll be interesting, but, but you know, Ibaka's a little bit... You know, he's obviously a better player than Biombo, and he's a more useful piece for flexibility. Uh, Tucker gives him another option to throw out there. The thing that worries me about that matchup that was less of a concern last year, the Raptors are pretty thin on shooting. So if Cleveland comes out and, you know, they're, they're second in the league in three point makes per game and second in three point percentage. If a series were to get into a shootout, um, Toronto might not have the guns to keep up. It's going to be a lot of, uh, Lowry and DeRozan still, and Lowry and DeRozan can get theirs against this team. They've shown that fairly well. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't think they'd back down from that, but if Cleveland's supporting cast outplays Toronto's supporting cast, which seems pretty likely, that's a tough gap to make up just with, you know, toughness and defense. Yeah. No disrespect to the Celtics or Wizards who both have been playing pretty well, especially the Wizards as of late, but Cleveland, I think most people would regard them as the biggest hurdle to emerging from the East. But the thing with that is if Toronto does end up getting the fourth seed and Cleveland does finish in the first, again, we we don't know if they will, but they could meet in the second round. And I know that fans aren't really usually um, ones to see nuance, but if they don't get to the Eastern Conference Finals again, do you think a large segment of the fan base will see that as a step backward? And if so, is that fair? Yeah, I don't, I think some fans will see it as a step backward, but in my mind, the Raptors were always going to be measured by what they did against Cleveland. And the fact that that's coming around earlier, potentially, um, is disappointing, but I don't think it changes big picture where the Raptors are at. Like, I don't think anyone's, I don't think in retrospect, anyone's going to look and be like, oh, well, they only made it the second round to have basically the exact same outcome. That's a, that's terrible. It's a step back in terms of, you know, playoff revenue and how long you lasted and the experience you gain. But, you know, that's a, that's a crime of the regular season. And the fact that they played poorly and, and suffered injuries to three of their most important players throughout the course of the season. So, um, I think initially people see it as a disappointment, but as there's some space given there, you know, it, it's not, it's not a major step back. It's they're going to be measured by what they do against Cleveland and losing to Cleveland in the second round. As long as that series is still tighter than last year, or the Raptors look like a better team, that's fine. Uh, the bigger concern will be if the Raptors do poorly in the first round again, and you know if they struggle to get by whoever their first round opponent is, or if they're getting knocked out in the first round. I think not only does that call into question whether this core is worth 
spending into the luxury tax for, but it also calls into question whether or not Kyle Lowry is going to even return. So the first round is really, really important to the near-term future of the Raptors franchise, but I don't think an exit in the second round threatens it too, too much. One final question for you, Blake. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, DeMar DeRozan has been the face of the franchise for a few years now. He didn't even seem to be tempted to entertain offers and free agency when that came up before re-signing with the Raptors. He's a sort of rare shooting guard in this league right now in that he's been so efficient but doesn't seem to have a very effective outside shot. This year, he's up to 21 shots per game, and that hasn't even affected his efficiency. He's still above 1.3 points per field goal attempt, and as always, he's been living at the free throw line. In this changing NBA game, how has he been able to maintain his efficiency without that outside shot. Yeah, it's crazy. The things he does well um, and how he gets better at them are remarkable. You know, he had he might have the best post footwork in the entire NBA now that Kobe's out of the league. Uh, and what he's been able to do is, you know, a couple years ago, those 20-footers he took became 18-footers and they became 16-footers. And he's able to get these shots off just a little bit closer now. And he's added a, a really nice floater game to his repertoire where some of these Shots that show up and maybe look mid-range-ish or, or on the fringe of the paint or whatever. Uh, those are better looks now because he's got a floater he can get off with either hand and take off from either foot. He's got all these kind of savvy moves in and around the mid-range area. You know, the Raptors too, part of it is that he's been so good in that uh, kind of outdated part of the game for so long, the Raptors have gotten really good at getting him in positions to succeed with those shots. So um, they run a lot of like uh, stuff similar to what Philly would run for Allen Iverson to kind of get him the ball on the move or get him a mismatch coming across the elbows uh, to work in the mid-range. That way, you mentioned the free throws. Um, you know, he takes .412 free throws for every field goal attempt that he takes. That's kind of helped him. You know, his true shooting percentage is safely above league average despite the volume which is a nice thing uh, and then the biggest part of DeRozan's overall efficiency might be that he doesn't turn the ball over for a guy who uses possessions as much as he does to have such a criminally low turnover rate it's a big part of Toronto's offense is protecting the ball and making sure that you're not giving away possessions because you're not built to score per possession like some other team or per shot like some other teams are so um, he doesn't give away many possessions he's at least getting shots he's getting to the line a lot Ideally, yeah, at some point he, you know, he starts knocking down threes. He, he's at 26% this year and he's flashed it a little bit at times, but never consistently. Uh, I think that, you know, he's mentioned that he'll work on his three point shot more. Like it'll become more of a priority as he needs it more. So maybe as he loses a step, but right now, you know, he's gets a little better every year as a passer, gets a little better in the post, gets a little better with his bag of tricks kind of when he's driving, if he's not going to get all the way to the rim, you know, it's tough to really marry these things where, you know, I'm a person who likes advanced stats and analytics and I, and that's kind of matches up with how I think. And then, you know, I've spent the entirety of DeRozan's career watching him kind of show how you can master these less efficient ways of playing. But as long as you're really, really good at them, they can still be okay possessions. Thanks so much for joining us, Blake. It was a really good conversation. Got a lot out of you about these Raptors. Good luck. Thanks a lot for having me on, guys.